My very first car was a 1968 VW Beetle. Yeah. I presently have a 73 Beetle that belonged to Dad, and I inherited that when he died. But on the back window of that uh, 68 Beetle, I had this symbol. It wasn't exactly like that. It had the words written one way underneath it. And uh, what that really meant, what I was communicating by wearing that or having that symbol, was that I believed that there was only one way to God, only one way to heaven. David Platt was uh, the youngest megachurch pastor in the country, and uh, he left that pastorate in 2014 and became the president of the International Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention, a post he held till 2017 when he went back to the pastorate. While he was president of the International Mission Board, he went to India, and he came back home to the States, and he talked about his trip to India. This is what he said. <clears throat> Who am I to travel all the way over here, India, to tell these people what they need to believe? Who am I to tell them that all of their gods are false, Hindu, Muslim, Sikh, or any other gods, because Jesus is the only true God? And who am I to tell these 597 million non-Christians that if they do not turn from their sin and trust in Jesus, every single one of them will burn in hell? Now that feels extremely arrogant, uncomfortably brash, entirely unloving to claim that 597 million people around me, Buddhists, Muslims, Sikhs, will go to hell unless they confess with their mouth Jesus is Lord and believe that God has raised him from the dead. Absolutely such a claim would be unloving, arrogant, and brash unless the claim is true. This is the view with which I was raised. It's the view that I was taught, it was the view that I taught. It may be the view that you were taught. I read the story of Anne Frank when I was in college, and what a captivating, sobering, but inspiring story it is, and an inspiring person that is. I recommend all of you to read that. Some of her inspirational words are these. When you consider that she died in the prison camp of Nazi Germany, I don't think of all of the misery, but of the beauty that still remains. It's an amazing person. In the long run, the sharpest weapon of all is a kind and gentle spirit. It's too bad Anne Frank is burning in hell. You see, the view that I was taught, everything that I was taught told me that because Anne Frank is a Jew, because she did not say the prayer asking Jesus into her life, she and all of her family in that concentration camp when they died are now suffering the wrath of God in an eternal pit of fire. You know, our, our Sunday school teachers and our preachers 
always made hell out to be a place for Hitler, not for Hitler's victims. But if our teachers and preachers were right, then hell would be populated not only by Hitler and Hussein and Stalin, but also by the people like Anne Frank, whom they persecuted. If only born-again Christians are in heaven, then the piles of suitcases and the bags of hair that you see in the Holocaust Museum represent thousands upon thousands of men, women, and children who are suffering eternal agony at the hands of an angry God. If salvation is available only to Christians, then is the gospel really good news? I'm afraid that for most of the human race, it's terrible news. Scientists tell us that humans in their present form are about 200,000 years old, and you go back to our ancestors, you can go back around 6 million years. Jesus didn't come make his appearance until 2,000 years ago. What happened to everybody else? Those previous 200,000 or 6 million years. Have you ever thought about that? This is Valerie Carr. She wrote one of the most, golly, motivational uh, books I've ever read. I heard her on a podcast by Brian McLaren, and uh, he interviewed her, and I immediately downloaded her book, See No Stranger, a Memoir and Manifesto of Revolutionary Love. Well, in the book, Valerie writes about her best friend, Lisa. They were in middle school, and they were talking and giggling, and then suddenly, Lisa says to Valerie, Oh, Valerie, I can't wait till the judgment day. When you and me and all the good people are together. And of course, by good people, Lisa was talking about Christians. And that confused Valerie because she and, Val she and Lisa were friends. And Valerie talked to Lisa about her faith. She was a member of the Sikh faith, S-I-K-H. And I learned in that interview that you don't pronounce her religion as Sikh but sick, S-I-K-H. And she was confused because Lisa knew this was her faith. And so Valerie said to her, well, where, where will everyone else go who's not a Christian? And Lisa had this concerned and kind of pale expression on her face. And she said, well, you know, down there. And Valerie said, Lisa, you do know, don't you, that I am not a Christian. And Lisa said, Valerie, yes, you are. I, I, I thought Sikhism was just a, a sect of Christianity. Valerie said, no, it's not. Well, the bubble of their friendship broke 
They left without saying a word. They didn't speak for several months. Then they were together with another group of girls. They were all Christians. And the topic of conversation was, what happens to people after they die? And Valerie figured out what they were really trying to say to her. So she said, so all of you believe that I'm going to hell. And all of her friends looked to the floor, would not make eye contact except for Lisa. Tears flow down Lisa's cheeks and Valerie's cheeks. And Lisa said, Valerie, if you'd only say the words, if you'd only say the prayer. The friendship ended. I encourage you to read the book. Because you'll see in Valerie's faith more love, more kindness, and more grace if you read it as I did than I've seen in there ever in a discussion about what happens to non-Christians when they die. Uh, the person will pull this verse out of their holster and they'll give that verse and it will be like, bam, discussion over. Case closed. The point has been made. And it is this verse. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Close the book. It's all over. Early in my life, I found this verse comforting. It was good to be in the in group. I was born in a Christian family. No, we were even better than most Christians because we were Southern Baptist. So we were the closest to Jesus. And this verse comforted me because everybody wants to be in the in group. I got older, and I, and I am embarrassed to say this, it wasn't until my adulthood that this verse really began to cause me problems. As I began to think of the ramifications for the billions of other people, not just presently, but in the past. Before Jesus was even born, and even when and after Jesus was born, but lived in other parts of the planet. I was just haunted by that. But recently, I find this verse inspiring. And I'll talk about that in just a moment. So there are three ways to interpret this verse. You see, have a question up there. Any questions so far? Yeah. I think if I talk slow enough, we won't have time for Q&A today. So three ways to interpret this verse. Number one, you can take it literally. And if we take it literally, it does, not seem, it does seem to be saying that Jesus is the only way. And that is certainly what I was taught. But the second way we can take it is to take it in context. The statement made by Jesus, 
was a statement asked by one particular person at one particular time in one particular situation. The person who asked the question to which Jesus gave this answer was none other than a guy that has been labeled with this title, poor guy, for all of Christian history, Doubting Thomas. Thomas loved to ask, ask questions, so I don't call him Doubting Thomas, I just call him Curious Thomas. I think it's good, Ted Lasso, to be curious. So Thomas <clears throat> asked this question. You remember that he was, the main question that he asked was a, a question that any reasonable person would ask when a dead person said that they were no longer dead. Thomas wanted proof. If there's been a miracle, I want to see the proof of that miracle. So Thomas was great at asking questions. And the context of this question in which Jesus gave this answer and the way, the truth, and the life is found in John chapter 14, verses 1 through 5. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. King James Version had mansions. I did a funeral for a lady before her funeral. She said, I want you to read John 14, but I want the King James. I don't want just a room. I want a mansion. But the idea behind verse 2 is that in Jesus' day, when somebody did get married, uh, the wife would move into the home of the husband, and the father of the husband or the grandfather of the, hus of the husband would be in the main house, and they would just add all these other rooms to the main house so they would all just live right there together. And that's kind of the idea of that. I'm sorry, it really didn't say mansion. This says a room. If that were not so, I would have uh, told you that I am coming there, going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. And you know the way to the place where I am going. Verse 5 is not up there. And so Thomas says, well, we don't know the way. What is the way? Where is the way? So Thomas is not asking Jesus the question, Jesus, are all non-Christians going to hell? That was not the question. And when Jesus makes his I am the way statement, it was to put the disciples at rest. At the very first, they say, don't be anxious. They were freaking out because Jesus had talked about his pending death. So this was something that Jesus was saying to them to put their minds at ease. It was not to give a litmus test for the afterlife. It was a promise. It was not a threat for anyone who does not say the prayer. We read John 14, 6 as a threat, but it was not originally given as a threat. It was given as a way to comfort because Jesus is leaving, and the disciples are scared. And it's almost as if Jesus is saying, guys, you know the way. We've been on that way for the last three years. We, it's been the life that we've lived. It's been the, the learning that we have experienced. It's been the values that we have held. And it's been the way we've treated one another. 
Just keep going along that way. And yes, I will be gone, but I will also not be gone. I will be with you, and we will, and I will guide you along that way. Remember that Jesus was a good Jewish man, and the disciples were good Jewish people. And Jesus was considered a teacher or a rabbi. And to a Jewish rabbi and to that rabbi's disciples, the word, the way, is a way of living. It's a way of thinking. So Jesus just tells his worried disciples, when I'm gone, keep following me. I'm a, my spirit is there. I'm coming back. Keep following me and keep following the way because the way that I've lived is the way to God. A key verse to me in understanding this passage is well, further down in John 14, and Philip said, well, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. And Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So, Philip, how can you say, show me the Father? You've seen the Father. Jesus is saying to them, and maybe to us too, if you want to, if you want to know what God is like, then look at me, look at my life. Look at my values. Look how I have lived. Look how I have treated people. Look, look how I have interacted with people. And look at all the people with whom I've interacted. What has my character been, Jesus is asking. Has my character been one of exclusion and judgment and favoritism? No. My whole life has been built around inclusion. My whole life has built around loving the other, the outsider, the marginalized. I, I, I could hear Jesus say my very first sermon in Nazareth, I almost got pushed off a cliff because I talked about God including the excluded. Uh, Jesus says my way has been compassion and healing and forgiveness and love and inclusion ever since the beginning. And if you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the stories of Jesus' life, you'll find that he got in trouble a lot. But he didn't get in trouble for excluding people. He got in trouble by the religious authorities for all the groups that he included. But the way I was taught to interpret verse 6 of John 14 is almost as if to say, forget Jesus' life. Forget how inclusive he was. Forget the woman at the well in Samaria. Forget the good Samaritan, a man who was of a different religion, a completely different faith, whom the religion of Jesus' day, Jesus' people, thought that they were so far from God and they were out of the fold. But Jesus told this story, this good Samaritan who had something within him that qualified him for eternal life. And that something was mercy. So can you look at Jesus' entire life of inclusion and can you imagine that he would spend three years of ministry of inclusion 
But then the last thing he tells his disciples is it's all about exclusion. It's only people who say this prayer. I didn't start having that question until I was about 45, 50 years old. Long time. But I had it, and I still do. Now, when you consider John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, the life, no one comes to the Father but by me, consider also John 10, 16. Well, Jesus tells his disciples, I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. Do you think, is it just at all possible in your mind, that when Jesus says, I have other sheep not of this sheep pen, not in this group, but I've got people in other groups too, you think Jesus could be talking about other faiths and other religions? If I look at John 14, 6, I've also got to look at John chapter 10 and verse 16. I'm learning that when I try to interpret Scripture, I can't lift one verse out without looking at the entire passage, the entire book. And I can't define a theology by one verse without looking at the entire life of Jesus. The Gospel of John has a lot to say on the subject. The one who said John 14, 6 was presented in the first chapter of John in this way. The true light, Jesus, the Christ through Jesus that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. So who does everyone include? Just the people in this particular group? Or maybe everyone? So if I look at John 1, 9, and I try to understand John 14, 6, they seem to contradict each other. So what do I do with the contradiction? As I talked about last week, I let love be the lens through which I interpret Scripture. Love changed how I viewed Scripture, and love changed how I viewed the question, do non-Christians go to heaven? John 1.9 is the Quakers' favorite verse who believe that everybody has within them light. And I really like that idea. And my understanding of conversion today is that it is, a, it is being awakened to the light that is within me. It is to be awakened to the, the life of God within me. Because the light is given to everyone by the Christ. I love this cartoon by David Hayward. Jesus is talking to his disciples The religious leaders are in the background. Let me clear something up. I'm nothing like those guys. They tell you how to get in. I say, you already are. You already have the light in you. Yeah. 
A third way to interpret this, there's a little, literal way, the contextual way, and the third way is a phrase that I'm borrowing from Father Richard Rohr. Take this as a reference to the universal Christ. Here's the thinking. I forgot my mint, Nisi. I don't know if I can get that or not. In my black bag. You may have one with you. Christians believe that Jesus is one with God and that God is love. If Jesus is one with God, God is love. Jesus is love. Jesus is one with love. Do you follow my logic? Jesus is one with God. God, <clears throat> I was diagnosed with this disease the other day. I've had it for a couple of years, but just got diagnosed a couple of weeks ago, and it causes a very, very, very dry eyes, very, very dry mouth. So uh, I apologize. I happen to get a mint every once in a while. So if, Jesus, if God is one with Jesus, Jesus one with God, God is love, Jesus is love. I don't know. I'm not going to write the Bible. I kind of like this version of it. Maybe Jesus meant love is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to God except through love. Jesus is one with God. God is love. Jesus is one with love. In other words... Father Rohr, in his book, Universal Christ, talks about a principle of view that is not original with Father Rohr. It's been around for 100 years or so. But the understanding that there's a distinction between Jesus of Nazareth, the human being whom Christians believe is the Son of God, but not every faith believes that Jesus is the Son of God, Jesus of Nazareth. And there is a distinction to be made between Jesus of Nazareth and the Christ. And Father Rohr calls him the universal Christ. And the Christ or the universal Christ is that manifestation of love that transcends all religious and social and cultural boundaries. That there is something that unites all people, the Christ. We call that love. It transcends all of those boundaries. And I think it's when we read John 14, 6, according to this theory, through the limited eyes of Jesus of Nazareth, that we become very exclusive. But if we read John 14, 6, through the eyes and from the position of the Christ, this manifestation of love that transcends boundaries, then it opens up our hearts to the idea of inclusivity rather than being so exclusive. And the bottom line to me, those three ways, a literal, a contextual, and the universal Christ, and all I can say today, today to sum it up is that if I interpret this story and this passage through love and I interpret my view of this question, do non-Christians go to heaven, I have to just say that love took me away from that first interpretation, the literal interpretation that only Christians go to heaven because exclusion just doesn't sound like the life of Jesus. It doesn't sound like love. 
I mean, think about this. Are you comfortable with a God who says, I love you so much? I absolutely love you. Unconditionally is what we're told. That's without condition. I love you unconditionally. But if you don't love me back, I'm going to send you to burn in hell. Now, can you imagine? Denise, I love you. My world revolves around you. I would die for you. But if you don't love me back the way I want you to love me back, I'm going to send you to hell. That's not love. For God to say, I love you, and if you don't love me back, that's not unconditional love. That's very, very conditional. And I don't know how to explain the verses like John 14, 6 completely. I just know love changed my mind. And love turned me from an exclusive person to an inclusive person. Let me go back. Junior high, Forest Park Baptist Church in Joplin, where Dad pastored at that time. Forest Park Baptist Church had a gigantic ministry for people with special needs, many of them physical needs, some of them mental needs. And I was old enough, I was still entrenched in the literal interpretation of John 14, 6, but I was old enough to be aware that some of these precious souls in this uh, special needs ministry did not have the mental capacity to understand spiritual things. They were adults, but they just, they couldn't grasp things. And so one time I asked dad, dad, are these people who are in this ministry who don't have the mental capacity, they don't understand Jesus, they don't understand sin, they're not able to say the prayer to ask Jesus into their heart. Dad, are they going to hell? And he said, no, son, they're not. Well, why not? Because you have to say the prayer. You have to accept Jesus into your heart, and they can't do that. So why not? Because God is love, and God is full of mercy. Okay? I said, is is that why we... uh, don't believe children go to hell? Because the Baptists believe in an age of accountability, and usually that hits around 12. And there's the view in the Baptist world that if a kid dies before 12 or so, then they'll, they'll be in heaven because they're not accountable. And when I got old enough in junior high to read the scripture, I remember telling Dad, there's not one verse about the age of accountability. I looked. <laughs> so there's nothing that gives kids gives kids a get out of hell free card. <laughs> and he said, "Well, son, that's what happens when you read the Bible. <laughs> you get more questions than answers." So I says, "Is it the same thing with our friends who are special needs?" He said, "Yeah, it's the same thing." We just believe in the mercy of God, the love of God. So fast forward a few years ago. 
before Dad died, obviously, we were, Dad, Dad did a good job of loving me in spite of my theological change. And um, I had to talk to him about this question, what happens to people who have uh, other faiths? I said, Dad, you remember our conversation about the special needs people back at Forest Park? He said, I do. He said, do you think that might apply to people of other faiths? People who never say the prayer? Do you think the mercy and the love of God could be greater than anything else? I think... And he said, well, son, we don't have the love of God. What do we have? He didn't say yes, didn't say no, didn't say I agree with you or I don't agree with you. He just said, in essence, stay with the love of God. Stay there. You could have just let her come on up. Let the children come to me, Jesus said. I'm not Jesus, but let the children. (laughs) Oh, gosh, it's a tough question. But I do want you to know that love changed my view. Love does not allow me to live in fear or in judgment. of people who look or speak or worship differently than I. Love allows me to see the truth and the beauty in other faiths. Love does not allow me to use the Bible to clobber people, to perpetuate bigotry and discrimination. It's been a really good journey. And uh, honestly, the further I have gotten from a literal interpretation of things, the more I've discovered and experienced the beauty of God and the power of love to transform how I see things, how I see people. And the more I experience this God of love, the more I understand that God is not radically exclusive. That God is radically inclusive. So I had Joey, our creative arts guy and a great t-shirt designer, get me a t-shirt that said radically inclusive. And if you disagree with me on that, It really is okay with me, and I hope it's okay with you that we might disagree. I'm in process, and you're in process. I'm not asking you to believe what I believe. I am just asking you to experience God in the way you can experience God. 